Hello, everyone. My name is Suki Thompson. Welcome to Reset, the podcast, a place for you to get some inspiration and advice to help you live a more fulfilling work life. I do hope that your journey to feel more connected, more inspired, just a bit more energized starts here. Take a moment now with me to reset. Welcome to my first Reset the Podcast of 2023. I hope, like me, you had time to reset over the break. Today, I'm talking to one of our coaches, Dr. Kate Delaney, mindfulness expert and clinical hypnotherapist. Kate studied at the University of Southampton, followed by a doctorate on environmental sciences in Central America. But her life changed drastically when she was just 24. In a matter of months, she contracted a mysterious illness, which left her bedbound for almost five years. In this week's episode, Kate talks us through those unimaginable times, her diagnosis with Lyme's disease, and how she made her incredible recovery with the support of her family, doctors, and friends. And now, how she helps herself, and most importantly, others, to find peace in the present. So if you're trying to reset those New Year's resolutions, this is a podcast to not miss. And if you enjoy it, please tick the like and send it to your friends and colleagues. Thank you. Kate, it's so lovely to see you today. How are you doing today? Great, I'm doing really well, thank you. Yeah, just coming out the other end of COVID, so I'm very happy to be this side of it. It's horrible, isn't it? I mean, it is, it's one of those things, isn't it? We lived with it constantly for a couple of years, but actually people are still getting it every day and it really impacts people. Have you been quite unwell? Yeah, I actually, for the first time in the last 10 years, I had to have quite a bit of time off work and uh, being self-employed, that's a bit of a bit of a shock to the system. So, <laughs> Gosh, gosh. Well, um, I'm glad you're with us today. So thank you for joining us, Kate. Um, this is particularly special. I love talking to um, the Let's Reset consultants that work with us and our specialists and you in particular. And we're going to I think have two sides to our conversation one about you because you have an amazing story and I think you've got some amazing learnings and some resets that really fit into our January reset Mm. Um, but then also we're going to talk quite a lot about well-being and mindfulness and that whole mental health piece which people really really struggle with and I know again being January we've got lots of people who have said okay what can I do how am I how can I really focus on it this year um, but let's start with you. Tell tell me a little bit about your background. Where did where did you come from? Where were you in business before a few years ago? Hmm. So I was a university student in Southampton. I studied geography and I was very lucky to be offered a PhD and I worked out in Belize and the Caribbean doing that. 
so I had a very like incredible experience really I, I lived on a banana plantation in the middle of nowhere and I was doing my little little bit of environmental research out there so I and my life was heading down that course I was doing a lot of work in climate change research it was considered you know we're talking 20 years ago now it, it was considered oh, amazing really cutting edge, actually. yeah well yeah people didn't really believe it was a thing at that time you know yeah. so it was a very very different life um and yeah so that that was how <laughs> how my life was going and um then I had just completed my PhD I just started my first post as a lecturer and I I was on a flight back from New Zealand we'd just been celebrating a family Christmas over there and I, I got a very strange sensation in my chest and at the time everyone had been talking about DVT I don't know if you remember but it was just this big yeah. thing and and I thought, well, this this must be DVT because I, it felt as though all the blood in my body was just rushing to my chest. It was a really surreal sensation. I just knew in an instant something was really wrong. Um, and I put on the put on the little button on the airplane, and the stewardess did came over. You, did you think you were going to die? Was it was it like you were having yeah. heart attack? And yeah, do you I, remember I, thinking, this is what it's like going to die? Yeah, I did actually. I thought I, I I remember looking down, you know, it was beautiful above the clouds and everything. And I was like, I was flying on my own. I was, you know, I on a long trip back. And I was like, yeah, that's it. I like it. It just it felt so powerful in that moment. Um, that I just knew something. You, you just know, I think you just know mm-hmm. when something. Yeah. And um, so anyway, <laughs> uh, you know, the stewardess was like, oh, do you, do you want some oxygen? And <laughs> um, and I was I was like, well, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, they they landed the plane. Uh, I they actually landed um, in an airport in America. I was whisked off, um, landed up going to a hospital there. Uh, they checked me over. They said there was absolutely nothing wrong with me and that I'd had a panic attack. Now, I they told me I was probably afraid of flying at the time. <laughs> Um, now, I actually had trained as a pilot as part of my university um, course. Um, so I kind of knew I wasn't. Uh, and again, like I said, I just knew something wasn't right. But anyway, I, I got back to the UK. Um, the next morning I was giving a lecture. So I, I, you know, I thought, well, maybe it was just a funny thing. I got up and gave my lecture. Uh, I walked home and on the way home, I collapsed. Um, so I went into hospital. Uh, again, lots of tests, told there was nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with me. And it was a very surreal time. I, I, it, I, in truth, I, you know, after everything, and I'll tell you obviously everything that happened afterwards, but that probably those first few weeks of just not having a clue what was happening, like I knew something was wrong. I was being told there was absolutely nothing wrong with me. And um, anyway, I then started getting quite severe chest pains. And what happened then um, was endless tests uh I went from being able to work full-time and study and all the other things I was doing to not being able to really do anything at all um within six months I moved back home to live with my parents I thought a, a short period of time at their country home um would be everything I needed to just rejuvenate um but actually to to their horror I I declined significantly um so Anyway, this continued to such an extent that within a year, I became completely bedbound. Um, so I actually remember the day I couldn't get up the stairs. I literally could not climb the stairs back, back, you know. And um, Kate, what age were you? 24. 24. Gosh, I mean, awful for you. But how scary for your parents as well. 24 years old and you just, you just couldn't, you couldn't, what, you just couldn't walk up and down the stairs? 
Yeah, I, I couldn't. I found it very difficult. To, I started getting a very um, low tinnitus in my ears. Um, and again, yeah, I've had tinnitus a few times when you get that high pitch noise. But this was sounded like a tractor permanently in my ears. And again, I just I just knew I knew there was something wrong. But I still at this time and we're talking now like a year and a half on. I, they still didn't know what was wrong with me. And I was being told things like, oh, it's post-viral or uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. And um, I, I got the sense at that time that they didn't know what it was. So I had a diagnosis of exclusion. I was like, well, we can't find anything else. So it must be this. Um, and so, yeah, like you say, it was it was very, very difficult for my parents. I, You know, I'm, I've always been incredibly independent. And I think that you know they did not imagine for one moment that their adult daughter would then come back and in the end be completely dependent on them even for food water um just assistance walking um so by um now when was it it was july 2022 um i was completely bed bound um summer yeah summer 2022 completely bed bound and in fact you don't need 2022 to you I'm sorry, <laughs> 2002. <laughs> yeah, I've missed out, missed out 20 years. Yeah, yeah. Um, so to such an extent that uh, I then remained that way for five years. Um, Were you bed bound for five years? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I didn't realise it was that long. That's yeah. extraordinary. So for those five years, I lay, I was a single bed in a small room and I, I couldn't listen to music. I couldn't read. Couldn't write. I could hardly talk um, because I was having seizures. Um, I lost a huge amount of weight. I think I was forty-five kilos. So essentially, I was I was just bone. And what happens when you get that small is that you your bottom completely disappears. And I, as a result, it's hard because you sit on bone. Um, so I was in pain a lot of the time. Um, I was having seizures. Um, and I have to say, in truth physically it was incredibly hard but emotionally yeah. it was inconceivable really I it like to to have gone from being a very happy confident capable woman mm. to feeling like a child um in a sense almost locked in my body you know it was very similar to locked in syndrome and that I just couldn't do anything I could still think um but I couldn't communicate and I couldn't I didn't have any experience really with the outside world I, I you know I didn't know what was going on in the news in fact I I found out a few years later that Brad Pitt and Jennifer, Jennifer Aniston had split up and I was really shocked <laughs> but you know there were there were quite uh, quite a lot of things that happened during this time um, and even now to be honest um I will hear something and I, I, I'll be okay that must have happened in those five years, <laughs> those five years. but how did yeah. you keep going I mean what, what... well kept you going every day how did you do how did you manage so initially um I, I think I would consider myself quite an optimistic person I think I'm a glass half full person and I think I had hope um and I used to have my dad who loves the news was part of, part of it he couldn't get his head around the fact that I wasn't watching the news every day so he bought me um the Matt cartoon books um from the Daily Telegraph um, and yeah. so I would look at one of those every day um and occasionally you know so I would like look at the odd picture and I would sort of draw inspiration from things I'd seen and um and someone bought me a bird feeder um that hung up at my window and I would watch the sparrows um but in truth I couldn't really keep my eyes open for long periods of time so even that was was draining um 
But in truth, during that time, what really changed was uh, there's an incredible man called Chris Altry, who is a sort of friend of the family. Um, he's a hypnotherapist. And my parents suggested that maybe he'd come and see me and see if he could help me. And um, I have to say, I was absolutely livid um, when they suggested this, <laughs> um, because I thought that at least my parents would appreciate how physical this illness was. Um, and I felt that they were suggesting if you just put your mind to it, you're going to be able to pull yourself to, together and get better. Um, now, actually, what happened was um, a, this very humble, incredible man came and sat with me. Um, I think it was every Tuesday he came and sat with me. And initially, he didn't really say much, but he I, he just had a presence of calm. Um, but bit by bit, um, he introduced me to some concepts that I didn't really know much about. I, I'd had previously an interest in Buddhism and, and um, meditation, but he taught me in a nutshell that I wasn't my mind, um, that I had a mind and that I wasn't responsible for the thoughts that my mind came up with, and that I didn't need to be held hostage to my mind during that time when actually the only thing that was essentially going on was my mind. Um, so you know, essentially during that time, <clears throat> what happened was my mind would either go into the past and feel I was fueled with regrets. Like perhaps if I hadn't done that, I, that, I wouldn't have got ill or, you know, thinking back over silly things I'd done and, oh, I wish I hadn't done that or whatever. Or my mind would go ahead into the future and it go, it would go, well, what if, you know, what if now, uh, my greatest fear actually was that I couldn't attend to my toilet needs. So I I could just get to the bathroom, which was just the other end of the room. Um, but the thought of the humiliation of having my parents help me with that um, or going into a home and having all my liberties taken um, was fearful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so either the past or the future, which is the, the, really the only place that the mind tends to sit, um, I was in pain really and and distressed. And so Chris taught me that actually there was this wonderful thing called the present moment. And that if I could bring my attention back from either the past or the future back to right now, to this moment, that actually there was peace. Um, and not only that, but this infinite potential for joy, regardless of circumstances. And what 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 he helped me realize was that despite the suffering, I could still find joy. Um, and I, I think to some people, you know, I think that must have seemed quite bizarre almost that I could find joy during that time. Um, but I can honestly tell tell you that I did. Um, and and peace. And and actually what that did was connect me with an infinite resourcefulness within myself to get through that situation. It wasn't what cured me. I'd love to say that then I miraculously got better, but but actually that wasn't the case. Um, but that really, really got me through that time. Wow, how amazing. How amazing. So, gosh, you learnt to live in the present. Um, And then what happened? How did you get better? So now we're talking 2007, so um, a good five years on. And my right at the beginning of the illness, I had been bitten by a tick and it was on my leg and I pulled it off. I was in the bath and I pulled it off and put it on the side of, you know, side of the bath. And um, I mentioned it to a doctor right at the beginning and the, the, they said, oh, we probably should do a Lyme disease test. So they did a Lyme disease test and it, and it was negative and that was it. And it was never discussed again. And then I um, 
saw many, many doctors over that those years, obviously, trying to find out what was going on. And one doctor suggested that maybe it could be Lyme disease and that it had been misdiagnosed. When I became so ill, I lost the ability to essentially manage all the different doctors that I was trying to communicate with to find out what was wrong. Um, And so my poor parents (laughs) then suddenly had this task of like, well, if no one's helping us, then maybe we have to do something about this. And and so the last thing in my notes was this doctor that has suggested that it could be Lyme disease. So my mum went to an international conference on Lyme disease on a complete whim, um, just because she thought, well, why not? You know, like, so anyway, she went to this conference and she heard people speak and she heard this Swiss doctor talk. And she thought, I reckon this lady can help Kate. She, cause this Swiss doctor was a GP that had had Lyme disease herself and had cured herself. And she had a very holistic approach. And she also was saying how problematic the tests are that most of them don't catch it. So my mother approached her and said, will you treat my daughter? And she said, no. Oh, that I only treat Swiss patients because I'm so demand. So, uh, and this is where it's, my my father is quite a strong character. Um, he he doesn't really, like he, he knows how to get what he wants. Um, and he, um, <laughs> out of just frustration and, and you know, whatever else, he, emotions he was dealing with, he rung the Swiss doctor's secretary and asked whether she was going to be around next week. And he said, good, because I'm going to sit on her doorstep until she sees my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> well, what are your parents called what are their names uh john and linda wow wow okay so what so john <laughs> did he literally go and so he didn't but and I I don't you know I don't think he would have but he I think he was just desperate and and the the secretary said I'm sure we can find an appointment I'm sure that's not necessary and so um the the doctor said she would only see me once um but she would she would do an overview and see whether she thought it was Lyme disease. Now, unfortunately, that then led to the big problem of I I was not well enough to travel. And in mm-hmm. fact, the doctor, mm-hmm. yeah. the doctor that was managing me in the UK said she didn't think I'd make the journey. Um, I personally at the time, because I was having so many seizures, didn't think it was a good idea at all because I thought that like I just I, it was so fragile and I was scared of getting any worse. Mm-hmm. Um, so my parents hired a camper van. Um, and one of dad's friends came and they carried me down the stairs and I went in this camper van to Switzerland. Um, and I remember it so clearly because I couldn't sit up. Um, so I was lying there just watching the sky <laughs> when I was able to, to be oh, away. How um, long did it take you to get to Switzerland? It was, I think it was a couple of days. Like we stayed overnight in France. Um, it's, it's, a, I was having, I was having a lot of seizures. It was, it was quite a tricky journey. Um, but we arrived in Switzerland and she saw me and she was quite shocked. Uh, I, so she's used to treating people with Lyme disease, but she was shocked at how bad I was. And she, I, I felt when my pa- parents were going through the notes with her that she actually understood what I was experiencing. Like for the first time, I was like, hold on, this lady actually knows what's wrong she with me. Because- she understands. So she was going, yes, I get that. I can hear the symptoms. I know what it is. I can. Could she predict what you were going through? Because you could. I think she empathized, and yes. I think she was a human being, and that was massive, actually, yeah. because yeah. I, because I think, for me, I needed to trust at that point. I needed someone to trust her, yeah. and um, she. I was in a wheelchair, and my mum, after all of the consultation, uh, my mum looked at her and said, "Is there any chance? Is there any chance that she will ever get better?" 
And the doctor looked at me and winked and said, it's not impossible. And that was such a poignant moment for me because for a start, I wasn't being spoken about. I was being spoken to. Um, but also I knew that she knew what I was experiencing. And then she said, I will see you again in a few weeks. And so that was the beginning um, of, so of she my did reach you. Yeah. So she prescribed antibiotics. I had a an unusual regime. It was like a rotation of antibiotics designed to target um, the infection at the right time, because uh, I don't think I said, but the reason I became so ill is um, Lyme disease is a bacteria. Uh, it's, a, a, it's, it's a particular kind of bacteria that is very clever, unfortunately. And it went to my brain, it invaded my central nervous system. And when that happens, it's very, very difficult to treat because it, it just is incredibly evasive. And so unfortunately for me, that that was what happened. Um, but she had a lot of experience in practically treating it. Um, and so part of my recovery was, was this antibiotic regime that she had put me on. So did you have to keep going to Switzerland in the camper van? Yeah. So actually, then what happened was because I had become so small, um, she felt that what I needed to do was actually gain weight. And the problem is I wasn't not eating. Um, yeah. But she said in order for the antibiotics to work, you needed to have greater mass. Um, yeah. So I had to essentially overeat um, as part of the um, rehabilitation. I then had to relearn to walk. Um, and so I've got memories of, again, my, being carried downstairs by one of dad's friends because I didn't have outside access from my room. Um, so having like this bed that I lay on in the day and I would walk around my parents' patio. I had, had walls holding onto the wall because I'd lost my balance. And <laughs> um, so it was a it was a very slow um, rehabilitation. Um, but was there a moment, God, it's an extraordinary story, isn't it? Was there a moment that you remember where you go, do you know what? Maybe I am going to be okay. Maybe I can get better. I think I felt hope when, you know, she said that to me and she winked at me. Yeah. When, But then when she told me that I needed to start walking, I was terrified because I didn't believe that it was going to go well because every time I had tried to do more activity than I was doing, it made my symptoms worse but it got to the point where I thought, well, I've kind of got nothing to lose now, really, if I'm honest, you know, like I, yeah. I'm not my my life is nothing really. And 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 actually, perhaps, it, you know, I trusted her again and, and I thought I will I will try it. And so initially for the first few days um, that I started trying the walking, I got worse and then something changed and I noticed I had less seizures. And then I noticed my dad, whenever he left the house he would shout goodbye and I would try and say goodbye, but my voice was so weak that he never heard me. And I noticed that I shouted goodbye loudly oh, <laughs> and, wow. and it was like some strength that had started to come back to my body. And that I think was a turning point. And then, then I think my hope was ignited. Um, but then I, in truth, the most difficult struggle was the um, neurological rehabilitation because I had to, retrain I had to learn how to read and write and I really it was so difficult uh, she had me doing children's jigsaw puzzles uh, because they activate the many different parts of the brain um, so it's like hand-eye coordination problem solving uh, rec you know pattern recognition all that mm -hmm. kind of 
Mm. Um, so, um, but it was unbelievably difficult. It was emotional. I, I, you know, it was humiliating. You know, I had, I was a published author, I'm PhD. You know? Oh no, horrific, horrific. <laughs> I was struggling, you know, with a Peppa Pig puzzle. So it was, um, it would, that was very hard, but it then, then it really did start to change. Mm. And was there then a, again, another moment? Because I think, I mean, I don't know for you, where actually you were getting better, but you were still exhausted. Because I, I, I've, in my time of being on nothing like this, it's extraordinary. I remember when people went, oh, you must be so delighted now because you're better. And mm. I'm like, yeah, I am better, but I'm knackered and I'm scared and I am exhausted. And I know I should be really grateful, but I'm not as grateful as I want to be because I still feel all the other things you feel. Yeah, it, it was strange, actually, because actually that is exactly my experience. And as I recovered, I still had the symptoms, but I was doing more. Yes. Uh, and that continued for a really long time, as in probably a decade. Um, mm. I would still have symptoms. And in truth, even now, if I go through something stressful, um, I will still get symptoms. Mm. Um, but I I it's just something that goes on in the background um I did the Great South Run uh, a few years ago and did good time and I, at the finish line I was so emotional and part of it was that I never would have imagined I think it was exactly 10 years since I started walking when I did the Great South Run mm-hmm. and I the fact that I could run for 10 miles um was was massive for me yeah what an extraordinary story Kate and it's you know, I've only known you since you were recovered. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I see a brilliant therapist, academic, amazing woman, now a mom of a two-year-old. Um, so one is an extraordinary story. And you must sometimes look back at yourself and go, I can't believe that was me. Yeah, it's, um, I... <laughs> The story is sometimes almost a bit surreal to tell. And I, I, I've become detached from it to a certain extent. And I, I've noticed, and certainly noticed initially, if I told people my story and I'd just brush over it, their jaws would hit the floor. <laughs> um, and of course, because I lived it, 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 it is, you know, it's not like that for me. But yeah, I, yeah. I, it, it's, it's definitely um, something it's funny actually it's it's something that I've been through that has enriched my life despite the the depth of despair that I felt during that time because I I now know what it's like not to be feeling that way and I feel there's a beautiful poem um some work by Cahill Gibram the poet and he talks about um joy and sorrow and actually what what he says is that until you have felt like the depths of despair you cannot fully laugh you cannot fully experience joy and I I that really resonates with me and I whilst I obviously wouldn't have wished for this to happen in my life um I'm grateful for for what it's given me you know I I recognize that's a cliche but but that's but but that's my experience Mm, gosh amazing um you know well we talk uh, don't we in, in a psychologist talk about post-traumatic po- post-traumatic stress but also post-traumatic growth um, and to me when I look at you and the life you now live some of it feels like you have made I mean an, an, it's an unbelievable story and amazingly inspiring but also you now 
live quite a different life and, and you you help a lot of people. So tell us a little bit about how you've gone on to do that. So you've taken, you've gone from being just an academic, not not just a, but an academic that was very much about saving the world to, mm. I always think you, you really are brilliant at saving people's lives because of the kind of focus you work, you do. But tell us a bit about that. So when I was ill, I, I had an, obviously a lot of time to think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I realised that, much as I, I I felt what I was doing as an academic was worthwhile, I didn't personally find it rewarding because it's quite difficult. You know, you do all this work and environmental work and you don't really see the fruits of, of your work. And I realized that for me as a person, I needed to feel that what I was doing was not only worthwhile, but also rewarding. And and I also felt that I really wanted to work with people. I, I, I'd enjoy people. And having been isolated for so long, um, I knew I wanted to do that. And so when I recovered, partly because Chris helped me so much, um, I decided to retrain as a hypnotherapist. Uh, I, I find it incredible that modern medicine is based on the placebo effect that we can um, believe so something so wholeheartedly that we can change our physical experience. And yet actually modern medicine is only just waking up to the idea that actually the mind <laughs> can not only generate symptoms, but it can heal the body. And, and actually that that interaction between the mind and the immune system um, to me is, is absolutely fascinating. And I really wanted to just delve into that. Um, so yeah, I started my journey. Uh, what I, what I discovered, I thought I would like to specialize in pain, uh, chronic pain, because I experienced so much of it. Um, but what happened was, as I started my practice, many, many people came to me with chronic anxiety, um, phobias, um, but just, you know, panic attacks. And I, and actually, what I found was that I needed to be good at that, <laughs> because people were coming to see me to help them with it. And yeah. so, I was in a fortunate enough position to be able to help from experience, um, partly through introducing the power of the present moment, um, but but also through some incredible techniques that I've learned um, to help resolve the past trauma that contributes to an anxious feelings in, in the present. Um, so I, I started getting successes with it and it just snowballed. And, and now I, you know, I, I work a lot <laughs> uh, with a lot of people uh, do, doing this work day in, day out. And, and it's incredibly rewarding and fulfilling. And tell us a little bit about, um, you know, to me, before I met you and other hypnotherapists and therapists in that way, um, I've used the hypnotherapist to, to do two things. One, to help me with sleep. And the other one was to help me not eat sugar Well, not eat sugar, but just crave sugar all the time because mm -hmm. that's such a big part of me. And I really wanted it out mm -hmm. of my diet, mm -hmm. um, particularly because we know it has a real strong link to cancer. So it wasn't just a vain thing. And I really wanted it. And I did it online and by an amazing hypnotherapist called Roger. And, and it and his worked brilliantly. And mm -hmm. the thing that surprised me was I thought that when hypnotherapy works, um that it would make me hate chocolate or hate sweets <laughs> and it doesn't I can eat I could eat chocolate I just mm. don't crave it and so for me it really is like it's just rewired my brain um so it's amazing and it's not it, it doesn't feel painful it's extraordinary and I you know believe in it so maybe that worked but what do you do for people and you know you do some quite complex work what happens 
because I think people are often scared to come to somebody like you and, and it might be a last resort, but I don't think it should be. I I, I despair sometimes that that, that is the case uh, because hypnosis um, has a bad rap, unfortunately. And we, we see people on TV doing all sorts yes. of silly acts. I think that's what it is. And actually, as a hypnotherapist, uh, really the work is about dehypnotizing. It's about an unlearning. And it's about my job is, is facilitating someone to, to remove the layers of um, trauma and, and the things that have happened in their life that have got in the way of them being themselves. And so like, like you were describing with your experience, you can remove um, almost like the um desperation around issues so like you say with sugar that actually that that you remove the need and so then yes you can have sugar but it does you don't have an emotional attachment to it um, there's a lovely quote that says it's not about finding yourself you're not a 10 pound note that was lost in last winter's coat pocket it, it's about an unlearning and an excavation and of finding out who you were before the world got its hands on you and and for me I, I say that so often to my clients because I I believe that we are infinitely resourceful and it's just that life has happened you know stuff happens and it gets in the way and so I I see it as enabling someone to regain control we, we gain control by letting go of, of a lot of the things that have have happened to us yes I love that. Infinitely resourceful is a brilliant lens to look at this on, I think. So, you know, if there are people listening today and they think, Do you know, this is the year that I really want to get to grips with, um, you know, maybe, I, I, do you know what I, I we went, we did a TUI conference a few weeks ago, well, actually a few months ago now, and the number of people who were on the plane, and by the way, they work for TUI, which is extraordinary, who hate flying mm -hmm. and it's not so bad that they don't fly but mm. they hate the experience mm. um or they don't go to events because they get so anxious about it so it's like you say it's impacting their lives it's not so bad that it they think about it every moment of the day but it to me it's the perfect example where they don't need to live that life in that way um what could those people do? What's the first step that they need to do just to help themselves? So it's an interesting question because the, the real issue that I come across with, with all of these things, you know, all of these phobias and anxieties is, is resistance. So, so we say what resists persist. Um, so when you are not wanting something, um, you experience it more. <laughs> um, yes. Yes. So, um uh, so it if you don't want to feel a sensation of panic for example because that's happened before yeah. um you will notice that panic it's like if I said don't think about a penguin right now there it is yeah. <laughs> um, so the resistance it's finding what you're resisting and and not not accepting it in the sense of giving up but accepting it in the sense of acknowledging that it's here anyway doesn't mean it's going to stay that way but it's saying right now in this moment it is what it is so that I, I believe is the first step to recovering from anything unless you acknowledge that it's here um not saying it's going to be here forever but just here in this moment the concept of isness <laughs> um then yeah. then ultimately you're you're going to continue to have a fight and you will you, you will sadly lose because we can't you know you can't fight yourself <laughs> um 
I would then say, um, come back to the here and now, to this moment, because you will find that in situations, so if you said, for example, a fear of flying, your mind will be going into catastrophic mode. It will be coming up with dramas, plane crashes, terrorists, you name it, all happening. Um, or it will be you know, going over the past, but generally in anxiety, it will, it will be going into the future and saying what if. So rein it back and come back to what is actually right here, right now, what's real. Now, the reason I hesitated in giving you that answer is I I teach mindfulness, but I have to say that when you are experiencing profound panic and anxiety symptoms, it is really, really difficult to try and be present in the moment and accept it. And so I I, I would love to say that there was a quick fix that I could give someone. Um, but all I know is that I the, I work with it in clinic um, in a very different way than, than I could, you know, you could do for yourself. Um and I can describe that process. I don't know how much time, you know, we have for that, but uh, but there is a process that I use um, that is incredible. Well, you know, I think we might do is this year, we're going to do a series of um, online Instagrams where we do little kind of clinics, not clinics, like your kind of clinic, where we're actually going to take subjects. And I, maybe we do that live on Insta where mm-hmm. we get people involved. I'm going to do one with Dr. Rock as well on some of these areas that people can kind of ask some questions, but you could talk them through. Um, because I, I think it's a it's a, a whole separate conversation. I think it would be lovely to do. And I think it would work quite well in that environment, don't you? I, I couldn't agree more. I think I agree. It's, it's, it's not a five minute chat. <laughs> no, okay, so we will do that on that. Yeah. Um, brilliant. Well, I, you know, I think, I think that's really helpful because I think people understanding themselves. So, you know, if you're listening to that, to, to this today, Take a moment to really understand the things you are worried about, the things you would like to change and find a way to be brave enough to come to a specialist. You know, I've talked so much last year about how do you find the right therapist? How do you find the the right person? But it always starts with yourself. You have to acknowledge it yourself and then you have to be brave enough to ask for help to be signposted to the right kind of people. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's not the work we do at Let's Reset. It's it's the brilliant people that we use like you for our workshops um, to use your kind of experience on much broader scale well-being and performance programs across businesses. But we're always keen to signpost. So if anyone needs some help, just drop us a line and we will put you in touch with people like Kate. Mm. Um, but Kate, before we finish, I want to talk about you having a baby. Hmm. Um, because when I first met you, I, I, you shared this amazing story with me. And I mean, I don't think you even thought you would have a baby, let alone us um, be where we are now. Uh, Tell us about that journey, because that must have been so exciting and also really quite terrifying. Yeah, so I am now 46 uh, and I when I obviously after the Lyme disease, I I thought it was probably quite unlikely that I would be able to have children. I, you know, I was only really 37, I would say before I got back on my feet fully and was was living normally. Um, And with my ex-partner, we um, had some investigations and uh, it turned out I had um, quite advanced endometriosis, stage four endometriosis, um, many adhesions, um, two very large cysts on both of my ovaries and a a very large fibroid uh, in my womb. Um, So the, I they they said that IVF was the only way I would have a baby and I went through five rounds of it um all unsuccessful I had three miscarriages 
And uh, the I spoke to a consultant um, after the fifth round and I said, what now? And he said, you would need major surgery to cut out the fibroids. Um, it may lead to hysterectomy, but we will try obviously not for it not to be the case. Um, um, but that is probably your last chance. And I said, OK, well, if you did that, um, what would be the likelihood of me getting pregnant? And he said about 20 percent. Uh, and, and I said, right, that's it. That, you know what? Thank you. <laughs> um, but that's it for me. I, you know, I've tried everything. I, and I believe that you need to also learn when the time is to yeah. acknowledge that maybe something's not happening. And so I struggles with it I like I'm not you know I'm skirting everywhere it was a very painful journey and mm -hmm. I walked um a well-known pilgrimage called the Camino de Santiago um mm -hmm. a few years ago and uh, on on the Camino one of the poignant moments is that you carry a stone and there's a pile of rocks uh quite a long way along this 500 mile pilgrimage and you let go as you put the stone down you it represents you letting go of something in your life and for me I put down the stone and there were tears obviously and I let go of my dream of having children and I just acknowledged that that wasn't my path and and that I would do other things with my life and um <laughs> and then I got back to the UK and I I met my partner and uh, I said that obviously I couldn't have children and he was fine with it and uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic I discovered I had I was naturally pregnant <laughs> Um, which was <laughs> a little bit of a shock. It was also quite annoying because the whole time I've been through IVF, everyone had just told me if I relax, I get pregnant. And I genuinely so I hated the fact that they were right. But it was um, obviously um, I, I was a high risk pregnancy. I was older. Um, I, I had a 16 centimeter fibroid throughout my pregnancy. Um, so it needed to be quite a major surgery to get my little girl out. But uh, mm. it was done incredibly well. And I now have a very healthy two year old. <laughs> and she is so gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. Well, thank you for sharing that. You know, Kate, I I could talk to you for so long. And I think what we'll do is we will definitely do our live podcast and then um, probably talk to you again later on in the year. But, you know, I think what I'm trying to do in this January and February is just inspire people to think differently. And we know so much of the work that we do. Opening up and being vulnerable is hard. You know, you've had an extraordinary story and you're well practiced at telling it, but it's still hard you know, opening up like you have. So I do really appreciate it. You inspire me. I love you being in our workshops because you always just, you know, you have a lovely perspective. But I I hear you often in my life saying, just be in the present. You know, you don't need to go in the past. You don't need to go in the future. And you can do even just some breath work to be in the present and live in the present. So I hope that people listening today have just got even a little bit of that. Um, and thank you so much for sharing your story. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed Reset the Podcast, I'd love it if you would forward it to your work colleagues, friends and family. Reset the Podcast is a Let's Reset and Advertising Week global production. Executive producer is Richard Larson, with me, Suki Thompson. Thanks to our sponsor, Liars Non-Alcoholic Spirits and voiceover artist, Talitha Penny. 
Music provided by Audio Network.